0: That's one of the the good things that we do. I think as a church, we have the ability, right? We talked about giving, and one of the things was when we give, we have the ability to give and to to make people's lives a little bit better during the holidays, which can be a tough time. Um, So all those things are good. We got a lot going on. All right. We're good. Good morning. (laughs) So like I said, I have been gone the last couple of weeks, um, so I missed the last couple of sermons but I have been in touch with Pastor Michael. And what he asked me to do is to kind of take the next in the series. So we've been talking about the armor of God. And I will be talking today about the last element, which is the sword of the Spirit. So last week we talked about the shield of faith. Before that we talked about, see if I can remember. I can just read it. Uh, the gospel of the readiness, of the shoes of readiness the breastplate of righteousness, the the belt of truth. I think that's it. (laughs) And today we're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we are in Ephesians chapter 6. This is where Paul talks about this. Ephesians chapter 6 in verses 10 through 12, no, 14 sorry. 10 to 12? Oh yeah, 10 to, here we go. Finally, my brethren. We'll, I'll get the, balls, the ball rolling here. My wheels will start turning a little bit more. Usually I have, have Brittany here to kind of send me eye signals, like you're, get, you're going off the rails. And she's not here today, so we'll see what happens. Just don't send her the recording. <laughs> so Ephesians chapter 6 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's where it goes. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I think that's it. Supplication for all the saints. So we see here that Paul has laid out this plan of the Christian life using this metaphor of the armor. And this would have been, of course, a readily understood metaphor to the people he was talking to. We don't really understand because we don't really wear breastplates and belts the way they did and like, uh, Spike shoes, and all these things that we've talked about, right? Helmets and, and stuff. It's this antiquated idea. But for them, it was very real, and it was very present, especially for the Jews who had lived under the Roman rule their entire life and had seen soldiers all around them. But it's, it's interesting that he uses this metaphor to talk about the armor of God. And up until this point, we've seen the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, all of these pieces of armor that are essentially passive in the way that they are applied, right? Not that they're passive in our lives, but in the metaphor, in the armor, they're essentially passive. There's things that you put on as a defense or to protect us against everything around. So the darts of the enemy come at us, and if we're holding the shield in the right position, if we have the shield of faith, those darts bounce off, right? If we are wearing the helmet, if someone bonks us on the head and you're wearing the helmet then you're protected. I don't know if you guys watched Thursday Night Football, but there was this crazy thing that happened in the game the other night where one guy ripped off someone's helmet and then swung it at him and hit him in the head. He did not have his helmet on, and his head was in danger, right? You got to keep your helmet on. That's a good metaphor for life. Keep your helmet on. Uh, <laughs> but, but everything up until this point has been essentially, essentially passive, and, and the word that is used is to take up literally means to, like, to put on right? Put on the armor of God. The verb that's used here when he says, take the sword of the spirit and the helmet is a different verb, which doesn't just mean to, to receive it, but it means to like to wield it, right? So we see that the sword, the sword of the spirit is the first part of the armor that is an active part of the armor. It's the first part of the armor that is on the offense. It's the first part of the armor that we are responsible for using and not just having, See, Charles Spurgeon in a sermon about the, the armor of God says this, he said, it is noteworthy that there is only one weapon of offense provided, although there are several pieces of armor. The Roman soldier usually carried a spear as well as a sword. We have seen frequent representations of the legionary standing upon guard a sentry, and he almost always stands with a spear in his right hand while his sword hangs at his side. But Paul, for excellent reasons, concentrates our offensive weapon in one because it answers for all. We are to use the sword and that only. Therefore, if you are going to this fight, see well to your only weapon. If you have no other, take care that you have this always in your hand. Let the captain's voice ring in your ear. Take the sword, take the sword, and so go forth to the field." The sword is the only weapon mentioned here that is offensive in nature. And the Romans had um, the sword that they took from the, the Hispaniolas who became Spain. And it was this short sword, It's about two feet long, uh, and it's called the gladius. And the gladius was actually called the gladius Hispaniolus, if you're into Latin. But the gladius Hispaniolus literally means Spanish sword. And the glad- gladius was the sword that every Roman soldier had, and it had some specific reasons. That it was built the way that it was. As an aside, gladius is the word from which we get gladiator, which means a sword fighter, which is fun. I like words. I teach English. I like language. Uh, but the sword that they had was short, and it was short because, unlike the spear, which was something that they would throw at the enemy from far away as a way to kind of ward people off, and unlike the the javelins that they would toss and and the long things that they would have in the catapults, unlike those weapons. The sword was designed specifically for close quarters combat, right? So other people had these long swords that were difficult to wield in a, short, in a tight space because it was like as long as your body and it weighed like 50 pounds. So they would try to swing them, right? And it would be like a hammer. But the Romans had a sword that was swift and it was quick and they could easily go in and like defeat these people with these other swords. And it had these special parameters to it. So it was a short sword and it only had enough grip on it for one hand. So it was a one-handed sword. And the reason it was one-handed is so that they could wield the sword and at the same time hold the shield, right? So you can wield the sword of the spirit in, this, in the metaphor. You can wield your sword and still hold on to your shield. In other words, you have your defense and you have your offense at once. Whereas if you had a giant sword that you had to hold with both hands, you leave yourself open to attacks, right? So the Roman sword was, was short and it was light. It could be used with one hand and it was, it was very sharp. And not only was it sharp, but it was sharp on both sides. It was like a dagger that had sharpened points on both sides. Uh, I recently got into pocket knives for some reason. Don't ask me why. But, but I bought a pocket knife, and if you mess with pocket knives enough, you're going to cut yourself, right? But you know, at least, there's always that one edge that's, that's dull. So, like, you can touch that side. The Roman sword was not like that. It was not a toy. It was dangerous, right? Had, it was sharp on both sides. And this is the metaphor that Paul chooses to use when he's talking about the spirit or the sword of the spirit which he says is the word of God. It's easy to imagine for me that he might have even started here with a sword. He might have seen this sword, a soldier carrying the sword or two guys kind of talking about, hey, check this out, look how sharp a sword is. He probably saw things like that and he, the spirit showed him, this is what my word is like, right? And I can easily imagine him starting with the sword and then building all the rest of the metaphor around it because it's so apt and it's so perfect. A sword is is something that everyone can understand. We may not understand breastplates and like special shoes and belts. Like what's so special about a belt? But hold your pants up, right? But we understand a sword. And the the sword is this kind of eternal image that, that stays with us. So verse 17 says, "'Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, "'which is the Word of God.'" So there's three parts there. There's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's the sword, there's of the Spirit, and there's the Word of God, right? So let's spend some time thinking about what does it mean that this is not just a sword, but it's a sword of the Spirit. I think this means essentially three things. First of all, as an overall point, it means that the sword is a gift from the Spirit. In other words, it's not something that we can develop on our own, It's not something that we can learn. It's not something that we can forge. It's not something that we find. It's a gift from the Spirit. It's of the Spirit, meaning it's from the Spirit, but also meaning that it is spiritual in nature. So the sword of the Spirit is not a physical sword. It's not even the kind of sword that we can develop within our own nature, but it's one that comes specifically from the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, I think, does three things with that sword. The first thing is that he enlightens us to know it. In other words, he gives us the wisdom to understand it. He, in Psalms, the writer says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? It's not something that I hold, but it's a gift that comes from me. Paul talks in the the epistles about uh, this idea where people were coming at him and saying, oh, there's hidden knowledge that if you just dig within yourself enough, you'll find the truth, right? And Paul says, no, there's no hidden knowledge, but all good things come from the Father. There's no knowledge but that which has been revealed through Christ in the scripture, right? So the Spirit of God enlightens us or gives us understanding of the the scripture. The Bible is our guide. We know that, we teach kids that, right? The Bible is the answer. The Bible is, I heard it said a lot of times, it's your owner's manual for your life, where it's basic instructions before leaving earth. It's your instructions for life. It's your guidebook. it's your rule book, it's whatever. And it is all those things, but ultimately what it really is, is the Spirit of God speaking to us. The Bible is our guide, but it can only be understood through the work of the Spirit. It's nothing that we do, it's not our knowledge, right? That's why the people who go to Bible school or seminary, they may have an understanding of the text from a technical standpoint, but their revelation is no more real than the revelation of of those of us who don't have that kind of education, right? We can still, as individuals, go to the Bible and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit will speak to us because the understanding of the Bible is not something that we learn or that we build up on our own, but it's a gift from the Spirit. That of the Spirit is very important. In 2 Timothy, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says this in verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed from God. In other words, it's not just thoughts of men. It's not just ideas that we think are good. It's not just another book of of Proverbs or another book of, of good lessons, but it's the very breath of God that is spoken to us. And it's useful. It's not only a gift that's kind of this ethereal thing, but it's useful for teaching, right? For learning about God. It's useful for reproof, for correction, for for bringing us back to the, to the right path when we stray. It's useful for all these things, for training us in righteousness that we, as men and women of God, may be competent and equipped for good works. In Psalms 119, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Throughout Scripture, we see this idea that, that it's not enough just to know the words, but that we have to be spoken to through the word. Jesus talked about this all the time. He talked about the parable of the, the seed, right? Where the, the sower threw out the seed, and some of it fell on hard ground, and some of it fell on ground that was full of thorns, but some of it fell on the good soil. And that good soil is, is not education. That good soil is not um, degrees. It's not being a pastor. It's not having been a Christian for a long time. That good soil is is an openness and a willingness to have the Spirit speak to you through the Word. When we approach the Word as something that we can wrangle, as something that we can manage, something that we can understand on our own terms, that's when our hearts are hard. That's when our hearts are full of thorns, right? But when we allow the Spirit of God to speak through us, through the Word, that's when the Spirit of God really talks to us and speaks to us through the Word of God as we pray and as we meditate on the Spirit. I will admit that I have, I think, a complicated relationship with the Bible, which is maybe not what you want to hear from someone up here. Um, But there are times in my life where I have, you know, like, man, is that really God's Word? Like, is this real? Is it just a book? Like, you hear things, people talking, and and you have doubts, right? And, And so sometimes you approach the Word of God with doubt, and you try to read, and you're like, man, that's good. That's a good story. Like, I guess I can try to apply it to my life. And there's a lot of times where you feel that way, but I had this moment recently where I I was just up early in the morning, and I was like, I'm just going to, I was like going to have my phone out, and I was like, I'm going to go on Facebook and see what's up. I was like, no, I'm not going to go on Facebook. I'm going to open my Bible app, and I'm just going to read Genesis, just from the beginning, right? And I opened it up, and I'm reading, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's this, it was a simple idea that I've heard a million times, right? But in that moment, God spoke to me through that, through that verse. And I think that that is, when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, it's not just something that we can, it's nothing that we can wrangle up, right? It's a very intimate thing that God speaks to us through this Bible. And it's not just that we learn about God, but he actually speaks to us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through this Bible, and not only does he enlighten us to know it, not only does he give us wisdom, but he actually applies it, right? In Timothy, he said it's, it's useful, it's profitable for, for teaching and for reproof and for correction. And I think the Bible is applied to us by the Holy Spirit in two ways. Uh, the first one I wanna look at is that God applies the scripture to us as the church, right? As the body of the church. If you look at the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, We see a lot of passages that tell us how this church should be. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 says this. Do we have that there? Oh, and sorry, that's the wrong verse. I'll just read it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were saved. The church, the early church that is recorded in Acts gives us a picture of what we should look like as the church, right? There's several things in there, but... I want to point out a couple of them. Number one is that they had all things in common, and that is a complicated <laughs> phrase to look at. On the one hand, it it, means, it does mean that they shared their money, right that they would put their money in the pot and that they would use that to help people, um, which is good. I don't think that's necessarily prescriptive for us. I don't think that's exactly what God is calling us to do, but I think it is a picture of, of what we should look like spiritually, right We should have all things in common. That means we should have joy in common. When a brother or sister is having good things happen in their life, when, when people have, have kids, and when people find a new job, and when there's accomplishments, we all share in that joy because we all have all things in common. And on the other side, when one of us is hurting, when we have loss, when we have downfall, when we have moments of weakness, when we have uh, moral failings, we share in that together because we have all things in common as, as the body of Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14, Paul goes on this long description of what the church should look like. He talks about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12, and he says the gifts of the Spirit are many. There's teaching, there's preaching, there's hospitality, there is um, loving one another, there's greeting, there's, there's administration. And he says there's many gifts, but they all come from one Spirit, right? They all come from the Spirit of God. We're different. Some of us are comfortable in front of people. I am not comfortable in front of people. Uh, if you know me, I can talk a lot, but I tend to be a quiet person also, I think, which my wife would probably deny, but I know myself. Uh, but I, I like just being alone and like sitting in, in the quiet and like reading a book or something. But, but other people are good with administration. I would not be a good administrator for a church that would fall apart and things would get missed, right? But other people have that gift. And some of us have the gift of working with, with young kids, and other people don't, right? I'm comfortable with high schoolers and middle schoolers. I'm not comfortable with little children because they don't listen, and they're crazy. Right? And they don't understand, like, why don't they just understand what you're saying to them? It's, cra- it's weird, like, they, have no, they don't understand the world. You can't reason with them, that's what I've learned. You can't reason with children, and I have a difficult time with people who are unreasonable, <laughs> even if they're kids, just grow up. And then I'll talk to you. What was I saying? Well, we all have different gifts, right? Some people have that gift and they love it. Patty, if you ask her, she would rather spend time with kids than just about anything else in the world. And God bless her because I don't have that gift and someone needs to do it, right? And others of us are, are good at maintenance and others of us are good at hospitality and others of us have been given the gift of, of teaching or preaching or, or singing or whatever it is, whatever your gift is. But there are many gifts, but there's one body, there's one spirit There's one body, he says, but many members. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. Some of us are shoulders. I don't know. You can easily get carried away, and so we'll end there. But there's one body and many members, and they all have different jobs, but they're all in service of the kingdom. He goes on to talk about, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the way of love, right? And this is a common passage that we know um, about love that we read on wedding days where it says, love is patient and love is kind, Love keeps no record of wrong. Love is not boastful, right? But we often ignore the transition there. Paul says there's many gifts, but one spirit. There's many parts of the body, but one body. And then he says, so do what God has given for you to do. And while you're at it, let me show you an even better way. And that way is love, right? He says there's even a better way, not just to stick to your work, but the better way is love. So the scripture teaches us that God, through the Bible, has called us as members of the church to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with one another, to hold each other up, to hold each other accountable, to lift up our gifts in service, and to respect the gifts of others in service, to be one body, and above all, he says, to love. He goes on to give us um, rules for orderly worship, where he says, you know, don't let someone just stand up and start screaming in church, but like be ordered, right? So that people can receive the word, that people can come together. If one of you wanted, like stood up and started screaming right now, that would be disorderly and that would not be what God wants. So please don't do it because I'm not equipped to handle that. (laughs) I'll probably just break down. Or let you, let you do it. We'll deal with it later. But he gives us rules, right? And not rules like, these are the rules. But he gives us guidelines, and he says, this is how you should act as my people. This is what the church should look like. And what's key here is that none of this, again, is accomplished through our own means. All of this is accomplished through the gift of the Spirit. But the application of, this, of the word shows us what our life is to be like. It shows us how to live It ties everything together, really. We've been talking about the armor of God and about righteousness, right? And we said that righteousness is in Christ and he is our righteousness. But how do we know that? We know that through the word and through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, right? How do we know what it means to have faith? How do we know what it means to be prepared? All of that comes through the word of God, um, which again, can feel restrictive, but when we acknowledge that it's through the Holy Spirit's prompting of the word of God, then that's a very liberating thing. In, in Hebrews, he, he, he talks more, and I think this is a really good passage that I want to read to you. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury that will consume the adversaries. I love that in the middle there. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, right? Let's hold that shield as we yield the sword of the Spirit. Let's hold on to that faith as we approach the enemy with that sword of the attack. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, let's hold it without wavering for he who promised is faithful, The promises of God in the Bible, the one who said those promises, who made those promises, is faithful. And we know that and the Holy Spirit speaks through that and it tells us what the church can be and the gates of hell will come against the church and they will not prevail against us because we have the power of the Spirit. The Bible and the Holy Spirit through the Bible not only teaches us what the church is to be like, but he applies the scripture to us also as individuals, as his children as his heirs. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, I have that one there. For the word of God is alive and active. I like that. Alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. Jesus says it like this. He says, He who hears the word and goes away without changing is like someone who looks in the mirror sees what he looks like, turns around and immediately forgets. The word of God is is a mirror to our our lives, right? It's a reflection of who we are. If we want to know who I am, if I want to know who I am and where my weaknesses are and where my strengths are and what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong and, and whether or not my desires are in line with God's desires, how do I know that? I know that through the Scripture, right? It's a double-edged sword. No matter which way you swing it, it's going to cut you, and it's going to reveal something. It's going to reveal a weakness, or it's going to reveal a strength. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. In other words, it gets to the smallest parts. There's nothing about you or anyone else that the Scripture, the Bible, does not reveal in in light of the God who wrote it. There's nothing within you that the Spirit of God cannot touch through the Bible. It judges your thoughts, and it judges the attitudes of your hearts. And that is both terrifying <laughs> and comforting, right? Because not only does that mean that the God of creation sees to the very core of us, but it also means that the God of creation sees to the very core of us, right? It reveals everything. It reveals our, our goodness in him. It reveals that righteousness that we've developed in him. And it reveals our weaknesses and it removes those weaknesses. Um, Revelation talks about it like this. It says, he'll take the stuff, take your whole life, throw it in the fire, burn away what's not good and what's left will be perfect pure gold, right? So the spirit of God through the scripture does that. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, your words were found or I found your words and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for i am called by your name o lord of hosts the scripture tells us that we are called as according to his purpose by the name of god right we're not just wandering we didn't just come here by chance but we were called we were called from the beginning psalms the psalmist says i am fearfully and wonderfully made i praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made you knew me in my mother's womb before I was born, you knit me together, right? We, the scripture tells us as children of God that we are ordained for a life of worship of him, that we were created individually and specifically to be who we are to worship him. Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says this in verse 3, 23 to 29. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into the Christ have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The scripture tells us again and again that we're no longer under the law. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to the law. But now we are free, right? The scripture says, the Holy Spirit tells us through the Bible, you are free. And you are free not to do whatever you want, but you are free to worship and to fulfill the the word of Christ. The scripture tells us that we're unified, right? We are no longer Jews, or Greeks, we're no longer white or Mexican, we're no longer American or foreign, we're no longer male or female, we're no longer young and old, we're no longer uh, whatever it is, whatever difference we think we have, that difference no longer exists under the blood of Christ. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if we are Christ's, which he just said we are, then we are also heirs to the promise of Abraham and to the promise of God. Scripture tells us over and over again that as his children, we are heirs to the promise of God, that everything that's good in here applies to us. Tells us how to be the church. It tells us how to be the children. And the third thing that the scripture does, the sword is he teaches us how to use that word, both offensively and defensively. Let's start with defense. The scripture, the Bible is our protector. The Bible is our protector from the world, and it's our protector from the self. It it protects us from temptation. Uh, Is there a scripture there? I think you have one that I don't. Yeah, so Ephesians 6.12. It's important to remember that when we're talking about using the Bible as an offense or as a defense, that we don't mean that we're weaponizing the Bible as a way to put down people, Right? We're not using the Bible as an offense against our neighbors or against our brothers and sisters to bring guilt or condemnation. That's not the job of the scripture. The Holy Spirit will convict us, right? We can call each other out when we're in a relationship, but the, Bible, the job of the Bible is not to say, hey, this is what you're doing wrong and you need to fix it. Although we can do that, we can, in relationship, it's not to walk out to someone on the street and say, hey, Uh, get your life right or you're gonna burn. That's not how the Bible works, that's not how God works, that's not how uh, the Holy Spirit works. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible is our sword that helps us to dispatch and to dismantle the schemes of the enemy. It helps us to to defend against and to attack against the spiritual forces that are keeping those brothers and sisters in bondage. So instead of saying, this is what it says, do it, we should pray, God, let your Holy Spirit convict that person, let it free them, let your word, the Holy Spirit, in the word speak to that person's heart and cut through and reveal those things. It's not my job to condemn the world, it's my job to to be rooted in the gospel and rooted in the Bible and to share that with other people. And the Holy Spirit will do those things. So the scripture protects us from temptation. In Psalm 119, verse nine, the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I just tempted all the time. I don't know what to do. Go to the word, right? I don't mean to be angry, but... I just don't know what to do. Go to the word. Let it cut you. Don't go to the word and say, how can I prove that person wrong? What scripture can I use to to bonk them over the head? No, go to the scripture and say, God, cut me open and reveal to me my weakness and then heal that weakness, right? It shields us from temptation. If you're tempted, pull away and spend time in the word. If I want to know, well, I'm kind of deciding between like this I don't know if I should go left or go right. I'm indecisive, so I'm just going to do nothing. No, go to the Word. What does the Word say? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the Word. It shields us from temptation. It protects us from disunity. The Bible we see is a unifying force. We just read in Galatians that there's no more Jew, no more Greek, no more male, no more female, no more in, no more out. We're all united under the cause of Christ. The Bible is a unifying force, and the more that we read it, the more that we celebrate it, the more we have that in common, right? Having all things in common, it says in Acts. And how do we do that? We do that through the Word of God, by rejoicing in the Word, by celebrating the Word, by reading the Word, by having the Word in us, and allowing that to be be the unifying force so that when we feel separated When I feel, when you feel like doubt, how do you come back to the body? Through the word, right? Through the promises of God that are spoken to us. The Bible is a unifying force not only today, right? Not only for us who are in this room and other congregations who are meeting around the city and the county and the state and the country and the world. The millions of Christians who who are invested in the word. But it also connects us to the history, right? It connects us to the history of the church. We have the same... Gospel, the same Bible that Paul had essentially, we have the same gospel that the early church had. We are united throughout history throughout time in this in the cause last week, we had a I was at a at a church up in l a and there was a missionary speaking there who is um a missionary to to a country in the middle East He's not technically allowed to talk about um because he's going there as a like a photographer, but we were, we were talking about it, and I was thinking about how crazy it is that, that there are churches there. I had a friend, and I was talking to my brother-in-law, and I was telling him, I had this friend when we were in, when I worked retail and I was in college, and he, his family was um, Chaldean. They were from the Chaldeas, which is like in the Middle East, and his family was Christian, and they had come here to escape persecution in Iran, I believe, because they were Christians, And their church, their family had been Christians since, essentially since Paul went there and founded a church. And that church has lived on in that town for 2,000 years. And I was like, man, that's so cool to like think about the church of God being there. And then as I was thinking about that and reflecting on that, I realized that that same truth is true for us, right? This congregation, this building may only have been here for 100 years, but the faith that we are a part of the Spirit of God that connects us, the unification through the the Bible, we are a part of that same channel of faith that has been here since Jesus walked the earth and even before with the promises of the Old Testament, right? It unifies us. When we allow the Bible to be a centralizing force in our lives, it unifies us together in a way that removes strife, that removes separation, that removes segregation. Not only does it protect us from temptation and from disunity, but it also protects us from a distorted view of who God is and of who we are. If we listen to people outside, even people who are sometimes good intentioned, it can be easy to have a distorted view of God, a God who is angry, a God who is vengeful only, a God who who doesn't care about our sufferings, right? A God who um, spun the world, but now he's kind of hands off, right? It's easy to fall into the trap. But when we look at the scripture, it tells us over and over again the character of God. The scriptures teach us the nature of God, that he is loving. That he, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? He's sacrificial. God is long suffering. We look at the story of the Israelites where God stuck with them for generations and generations and they just never got it. Sounds familiar. They never got it, but he stuck with them. Right? He's long suffering. He's not the God to abandon us. He's the God to stick with us. The scripture tells us that God is just, that the evils that we see, the, the negative things in the world, the strife, the pain, the suffering, the disease, that God has a plan to heal all of that. Um, last week was Veterans Day, and I was thinking about like all the veterans that I know in my family, like uncles and my own father-in-law, and, and I was just thinking about the sacrifices that people made and while I was thinking that that's, like, how cool, how great it is that people are willing to sacrifice that, I, w- I was aware of the other side that that also means that there is something that has to be sacrificed for, right? As long as we have soldiers, that is an indication that we have war. And war is not what God has for us. And I was reminded of the verse in Isaiah where, where God says that he will speak to the nations, ultimately this promise, and that... No longer will nation wage war against nation, but people will turn their spears into plowshares. They'll turn their swords into pruning hooks. In other words, they'll take their weapons of destruction and make them instruments of creation. And I believe that promise because God is just, right? He doesn't want people to kill each other. He doesn't want us to be segregated. He doesn't want us to hate one another. He wants us to love one another. And ultimately, we're being pulled towards that in the Scripture, Uh, The Bible also tells us that God is holy, that he is not like us, he is beyond us, he is above us, and that we can connect to him through that. But ultimately, the sword is a weapon that is used defensively and offensively. It's a sword, it's a weapon not of compromise, but of victory. Charles Spurgeon in that same sermon went on to warn his congregation against the impulse to compromise. He said, the sword of the Spirit is not a weapon of compromise, but of victory. It's not there to, it's not enough to temper the sword with other philosophies or to try to evade our temptation through those philosophies. But we must always turn to the Word first. Because though those other things might be useful and helpful, the Word of God is not only useful and helpful, but it's a direct line to the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God is alive and active. And it's not only alive and active From us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We have this weapon as an offensive weapon as well. It's not just to protect us, but it's to combat the forces of the enemy, right? Those principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness, those things of the world, uh, the philosophies of the world that will distort our image of God, distort our images of ourselves. We have a weapon that is formed against that, a weapon that is formed that no weapon formed against it shall prosper, right? The the sword of the Spirit is that weapon that tears down the principalities of the world. It allows us to evangelize with the gospel in a way that is bringing good news incisively and directly to the hearts of those around us. So it's not enough to hold the Bible for ourselves, right? But the Bible has to go out. The Bible has to be a weapon against the things of the world. Isaiah said, how will they know Or Paul says, how will they know if they are not told? You have the sword. It's your job. It's my job to tell people about it. Not in an offensive way, not in an angry way, but say, look, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son for you. Right? It's simple. But that sword, that truth pierces through the darkness. It pierces through depression. It pierces through addiction. It pierces through... Centuries and and generational traumas, and it pierces through pride and guilt to the very heart of us and allows us to see Christ for who He is. The Bible is offensive in evangelism, it's our offense in tearing down the lies of the world around us. The Bible gives us the truth to speak against the lies of culture that say that right is wrong and wrong is right and up is down and that love is or that the way of God is antiquated. The Bible gives us the truth to speak against those lies. It gives us the truth to speak against the lies of the deceiver who would say, You're condemned, you're nothing, you're no good. It gives us the truth to speak against the lies of our own selves, right? When I say, Well, I'm just not going to read the Bible because I don't think it's going to do anything for me. The Bible gives me the truth to know that if I go to the Word, there's a fountain that will never run dry, right? There is the gospel, the Bible is always there, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through that. This is why I believe that memorizing the Scripture is important. And it's not just about memorizing so that we can say, I oh, learned 200 script verses today. No, it's about memorizing in a way that is internalizing the Scripture so that the Bible becomes not an abstract thing, but it becomes a part of who we are. Because the Bible is, again, it's the Word of God as a gift from the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us the Word not to exist apart from us, but to dwell within our lives so that we can live out the Scripture. And when we live by the Word, by the sword of the Spirit, we have the power of the Spirit in our lives. Romans 6, 10, and 11 says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. The same Spirit that gave Him victory over hell and the grave is alive in us. That Holy Spirit of God is alive in us. The Holy Spirit speaks the Word to us. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have some examples of how this plays out in our life. For, for Paul, the Old Testament and the New Testament was the revealing of the Christ nature of Jesus. He, he looked to the scripture and the scripture revealed this is the Christ, this is the chosen one. We saw that Jesus used the Bible both as offense and defense, right? He used it against the enemy, he used it to combat Satan in the wilderness. He used it against the Pharisees who were trying to distort what God was. He pointed out our hypocrisy. He pointed to himself, right? The Old Testament points to the coming Savior. And he used it to destroy our false conceptions of who God is. And for us, I think it's important to remember that the sword of the Spirit is not passive. And it doesn't work if we don't pick it up, right? You can fall asleep, and the shield will protect you. You can fall asleep, the breastplate will protect you. If you fall asleep, the sword does you no good. Right? If you're not vigilant, the sword doesn't do anything. It's just there. The armor is meant to push forward, and the sword of the Spirit is the thing that guides us, the thing that allows us. For us, we experience God primarily through prayer and through His Word. We, our connection to the Holy Spirit is twofold. twofold. Prayer, and it's the Word. And I know, growing up in church, you hear, how do we, what's the Christian life? Pray and read the Bible. Pray and read the Bible. And we repeat it so much that it almost means nothing to us at a certain point. But it's true. If you want to connect to God, how do you do that? You pray, and you read the Bible. And not just read it as a book, but acknowledge that this is a gift from God, the method through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us on a daily basis, The Bible is our ever-present connection to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't need our emotions or our feelings. It doesn't require us to accept it or understand it immediately. But it is an ongoing and an ever-present, active and living conversation between God's people and their Creator. If you want to connect to God, if you want to put all those other pieces of the armor into action, there's only one way to do that. And that is through taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. God, we are in awe, Lord, of you. We thank you that you have given us this gift, this precious gift, Lord, that allows us as finite creatures, as flawed creatures, as sinful people, to connect in an instant with the Almighty, God, to connect to your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us the sword, Lord, to defend us against temptation, to defend us against misconceptions, to defend us against our own, our own darkness that lies within us, God. And we thank you that you have given us the sword, Lord, that will attack the enemy, attack the lies, and bring truth to our situation, bring truth to the world around us. We ask, Lord, that you would convict us to to take your word seriously and not treat it as just another thing that we do. God, but let us approach it in reverence, in awe, as if we were approaching you in the temple, God, because we are, and we know that your Holy Spirit speaks to us through your word. And we just ask, Lord, as we go from this place, God, that you would be with us, be in us, speak to us, allow us to hear your voice, Lord. Allow us to spend time with you And teach us always to hear the call of the captain. Take up the sword. Take the sword. Take the sword. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed from church. If you have kids, I think the kids are out there uh, ready, hopefully. We will be back on Wednesday night, uh, 6 o'clock. Don't forget if you're bringing stuff for the baskets to bring that Wednesday night as well